Good morning, Calvary family. I hope you all are doing well this morning, and it is good to be here. I'm super excited to continue uh, the sermon series on Exodus, and we've been following the life of Moses through. Oh, I guess I should introduce myself. I'm Jordan, by the way. I'm the children's pastor, if you don't know who I am. Um, I thought I should throw that out there. But we're covering a huge chunk of Exodus today. Now, so far, we looked at Exodus 1 and 2 the first week, and we talked about the events surrounding Moses' birth. And then we moved to Exodus 3 and 4, where we learned about Moses' flight to Midian and um, his call to, with God at the burning bush. Now, today we are looking at Exodus 5 through 13, which is nine chapters of the Bible. So, make yourselves comfortable. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but it is a huge chunk of scripture. But we're going to be looking today at the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. Or, in other words, the God of Moses and Pharaoh. And at this point in the story, Moses knows what God is calling him to do, but, and he also recognizes some of the challenges that call is going to entail. And this true story of scripture we're looking at today reminds us that, yes, our God is a God who liberates, and our God is a God who fights for his people. And this God invites us into a life of faith rooted in the confidence of the awesome God who's the object of our faith. Or in other words, we can have confidence doing what God has called us to do because the God we serve is truly an awesome God. So let's set the stage here a little bit and recap the story. I'm going to give you like one of those speedy recaps, right? We're going to go through this real quick. So the first thing is God's people are enslaved in Egypt, right? And Pharaoh commands that every Hebrew baby boy be thrown into the Nile, which sometimes we just say that and move on. But like, let that hang for a little bit, the like awfulness of that, right? Now Moses is born and his mom, who's unable to keep him secret any longer, which any of y'all that have had kids, right, like know how hard it would be to keep a child quiet, right? And so she takes and puts him in a basket, puts him in the Nile River, and that basket is then discovered by none other than the Pharaoh's daughter, who then adopts Moses as a son, and he lives his early years in Pharaoh's courts. Now, flash forward, right? Moses is now an adult, and he's out among his own people, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, kills that Egyptian. And rather than his people supporting him in this, right, they still look at him with disdain for his actions. Pharaoh wants to kill him. He runs away to be a shepherd in Midian, and he's called by God from the burning bush. And God reveals to Moses who he is and tells Moses his part in freeing the people of God. And Moses makes a bunch of excuses, right? Like, I can't speak very well. I, you know, they're not going to listen to me. All the way down to, Lord, I just don't want to go, right? And God dismisses all these excuses and tells him he needs to go and gives him Aaron, his brother, to help him speak. So it's quite the story we have so far, right? And we haven't even gotten to what we're covering today. So let's look at Exodus 5, 
which if you've got your Bibles, right, or you got your phones, right, flip them open, scroll them open, whatever you do. And let's look at Exodus 5, 1, and 2. It says, Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Well, that went well. Uh, Pharaoh is not going to let the people go because he does not know the Lord. Pharaoh is not only saying he doesn't know, like, the Hebrew God, but also he doesn't see him as real, as authentic, as, wor as someone worthy of obedience. And something you have to understand about the culture back in this time is that it was believed that your God is rooted to your country. So, like, if you go to another country, your God is powerless, right? Your God only has power in your country. So that's why whenever cultures back then would march off to war, a lot of time they'd bring little idols with them, because otherwise their gods can't do anything. So if you bring the little idol with you, right, your God still has power. But other than that, your God is stuck, right, in his country. So you can kind of see from Pharaoh's mindset of, look, your God obviously can't do anything because if your God could do something, he wouldn't have let me enslave you, right? And furthermore, you're not in Israel. You're in my country. So your God has no power here. That's essentially what Pharaoh is saying. And he says, who is the Lord? I haven't even heard of him. And we're going to see God come back with a resounding, well, I'll show you who I am, right? And as a consequence of this interaction, Pharaoh tells the Egyptian slave masters that they cannot provide straw to make bricks. Now you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Well, if you're trying to make bricks of mud, right, you can imagine how helpful straw would be to holding them together. And furthermore, Pharaoh requires the same number of bricks, which is not only unreasonable, it's also just cruel. And so the Israelites go to Pharaoh and tell him this, and he just dismisses them as slackers. Like, he's like, y'all are a bunch of slackers. Get it together. Come on. So the Israelites then go back to Moses, and here's what they say in Exodus 5. They say, when they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron, who stood waiting to meet them. May the Lord take note of you and judge, he, they said to them, because you have made us reek to Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. In other words, they're essentially like, this is not what you promised us, right? You promised us freedom. You promised us no more enslavement. You promised us better than this, and you have not come through. So Moses then approaches God in 22 through 23 of 5 and says, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has caused trouble for this people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. So the Israelites complain to Moses. Moses complains to God. And this is, they haven't been dealing with Pharaoh that long, but they're already ready to, like, call it quits, right? Throw in the towel. And... God tells Moses to tell this to the people of Israel, right? We got a little bit of like holy telephone going on here, right? So God tells Moses to tell this to the people. 
in Exodus 6, 6 through 8. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God. And I want to read that line one more time, because that line's going to be extra important later. You will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Yeah, right? Like, that doesn't get you pumped, right? But how does Israel respond? Look at the following verse, verse 9. Moses told this to the Israelites— but they did not listen to him because of their broken spirit and hard labor. So it didn't make, take much for the Israelites and, the Moses, and Moses to panic, right? Like, and you, I've mentioned this before, I'm pretty quick to get down on the Israelites sometimes. Like, y'all get it together, right? But when we stop and look at that, we realize sometimes we have more in common with them than we like to think. And like, how do we handle crises in our own life? How do we ch handle challenges in our own life? And, the, and our, the first point I want to bring up is following God's call for your life often means challenges will come. Now, am I saying the hardest option is always the right option? No. But am I saying the right option normally involves challenges? Yes. So for example, don't go through your whole life saying, well, this is the hardest option, so this must be what God is calling me to do. But know that when you decide to do what God calls you to, you're going to have challenges along with it almost all the time. So how do we deal with that? Do we give up? Do we fail to hear God's voice because of our broken spirit? I mean, I would argue those aren't the best responses, right? But if we're honest, and if I'm honest, sometimes we fall into those traps. But at the end of today, we're going to see some truths that can help us when we're faced with challenges as we follow God's call, so that we can go confidently into what he has called us to do. So Moses and Israelites are ready to give up, but before we get to the plagues proper, I think there's a really important note to make here. So look at Exodus 7, 5. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. Okay, so at first glance, you're like, yeah, okay, what's the big deal? Like, we already knew God sending plagues. But this is a big deal because God affirms his relationship with Israel because he— both Israel and Egypt are going to know that he's the Lord their God, but, but only one of them gets to know the Lord as the Lord your God, the Lord their God. Secondly, and this is my second point, God is merciful. And you're like, okay, well, that's a stretch, Jordan, because we're looking at the, the passage of the ten plagues today. Like, I don't know if you know what passage you're preaching, right? But hear me out. We often like to differentiate between an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, as if they're like two different people, right? Like, on one hand, we have angry God, right? And on the other hand, we have warm fuzzies God, all right? And we can't separate them that way because we have one God through the whole story of the Bible. And I've found we often find what we're looking for or what we expect. 
So in the Old Testament, we often fail to see the mercies of God because all we're expecting to find is grumpy, angry God. And when we go to the New Testament, we miss out on God's judgment on sin because all we expect to find is love. But if we leave out God's holiness or we leave out God's love, we're left with a one-sided like caricature of who God is. It's not the one true God. So I promise I have a point. I'm getting there. Let's, in the midst of this passage on wrath and judgment, let's not miss God's mercy. Because both Egypt and Israel are going to know that he is the Lord. Both are lacking in that knowledge. And yet one of these nations is going to be left decimated. And the other, despite their equal lack of knowledge of God, is going to be liberated and freed for no other reason than that God has chosen them to be his people in an act of mercy. And some of y'all now are sitting on the edge of your seats waiting for to see how I deal with predestination. Well, look, y'all. I got nine chapters to cover, all right? So, like, we're going to keep moving, right? But if you really want my opinion on predestination, come find me later. But I will say this. Whether it's predestination or free will, God tells us to go tell people about Jesus. So, there you have it. All right? But in summary, God is abundantly merciful towards Israel because by no merit of their own are they deserving to be liberated from slavery. They need to be reminded of the Lord's identity just as much as the Egyptians. So let's get into the plagues proper. And I do want to make one quick note here. So I'm originally from Wisconsin, and I used to say things like bag and tag and magazine, and then people made fun of me, so now I say bag, tag, and magazine. But sometimes I overcorrect and say plagues instead of plagues. So, like, if you hear me say plagues, I mean plagues. Just turn that The kids are very quick to correct me on that. They're like, what are you talking about? So, just a heads up. So, to tip my hand a bit, the main point here is, with the plagues is that God is powerful. All right? And to be honest, that doesn't take much to gather, right, from reading these. But I want to look at a few specific parts of the plagues that really emphasize this. Because there's a lot that could be said about these, right? There's really cool things with like each of the plagues is an attack on the gods of Egypt, and God proves himself over the Egyptian gods. There's some really interesting things if you follow like seeing, hearing, believing, and knowing throughout the plagues. There's really cool things there. But we're going to kind of take like a bird's eye view, right, of these plagues and jump around a bit. So first of all, we have a showdown in Exodus 7, 8 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh tells you, perform a miracle, tell Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh. It will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Okay, so until recently, right, I'd always thought like the Pharaoh's magicians were just kind of like, like sleight of hand people, you know, like they didn't really turn their staff into serpents. They just like made it look like it. But here's the thing, is that it kind of cheapens the story a bit if we don't fully accept the intense powers of darkness that God is dealing with in this story. 
And so these magicians are not, you know, Joe Schmo magicians. These would have been considered the top, like, religious magician-y people in Egypt, the ones that are in Pharaoh's court. And the story loses its, pow loses its power a little bit if it's just a big, powerful god terrorizing a bunch of Egyptian Houdinis. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's realize the fact that these magicians are doing very dark things using very dark powers of the world that are not of God. And yet God proves his superiority here when, like, Aaron's staff snake eats their staff snakes, which is epic. Um, like, what a flex. Um, so... Then we see in 722, we're going to follow the magicians a little bit. It says, But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their occult practices, so Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So context. First plague is the entire Nile River turned to blood. Yet, Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. So Pharaoh is like, my guys can do that. Not impressed. Never mind the fact that Moses turned like an entire body of water to blood and his magicians probably did like a little cup, right? But Pharaoh's not impressed. So then you jump to Exodus 8-7. The Bible says, But the magicians did the same thing by their occult practices and brought frogs up onto the land of Egypt. Context. Second plague is frogs. Now, above, now of all the plagues, this one might seem like the least big of a deal. But look, y'all, have you ever found a frog in an unexpected place? You know what I'm saying? Like, like you lift up the sheet on your bed, bam, frog. You know, like you put something, like you put something in the oven, bam, frog. Like, not pleasant, all right? But then, as if that's not enough, it cracks me up how, what the magicians do. Because it says the magicians are able to also make frogs, as if the land of Egypt needed more frogs. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're like, look, Pharaoh, we made frogs too. And Pharaoh's like, I don't need more frogs, right? Like, they can't actually solve the problem. They just, like, make the problem worse by copying what God is doing. And then in Exodus 8, 18 through 19, it says, The magicians tried to produce gnats using their occult practices, but they could not. The gnats remained on people and animals. This is the finger of God, the magicians said to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So this time, the magicians can't match the plague. They give up and they say, this is the finger of God. We cannot copy this. And look, this is only the third plague. And the magicians are already like tapping out. Like we, we can't match this. And then finally they're mentioned in 8.11. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of their boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. This is the sixth plague. And this time they can't even appear before Moses because of their boils. Like these are the guys who are supposed to protect Pharaoh, protect Egypt from disease, and they can't even protect themselves, right? And furthermore, the boils would have been extra humiliating to them because as like the religious leaders of Egypt, it would have made them like unclean, right? Or unable to be presentable, right? So God doesn't just demonstrate his power through proving he's more powerful than the magicians. He also kind of embarrasses them a little bit. Right? Like, he shows himself to be so powerful that they can't even come close to the power of the one true God. And God also displays his power by being able to distinguish between his people and the people of Egypt. For example, during the plague of flies, here's what God says. 
In Exodus 8, 22 through 23. But on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen, where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I, the Lord, am in the land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will take place tomorrow. Which, speaking of which, you know where it says, I, the Lord, am in the land? That's once again what I was talking about earlier, that mindset of God's only being in their country. God is making it very clear he has just as much in Egypt— as he is in Israel, right? And then if you look at 9, 18 through 20 and 26, tomorrow at this time, I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Therefore give orders to bring your livestock and all that you have in the field into shelters. Every person and animal that is in the field and not brought inside will die when the hail falls on them. Okay, so first of all, that's some hail, first of all. And like, it's, and at first I'm like, that's some hail. <laughs> and then I'm like, that's terrifying, right? Like, can you imagine hail so severe that if you are outside, you are going to die? And so those among Pharaoh's officials who feared the word of the Lord made their servants and livestock flee to shelters, but those who didn't take to heart the Lord's word left their servants and livestock in the field. The only place it didn't hail was in the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. So notice, notice this time some of the Egyptians take God seriously, right? Like they're like, I don't know if I'm going to follow Israel's God yet, but I'm at least going to take his word seriously and bring in my servants and my livestock. And then finally in Exodus 10:7, Pharaoh's officials asked him, how long must this man be a snare to us? Let the men go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Don't you realize yet that Egypt is devastated? So even Pharaoh's own officials are like, dude, get these people out of here. Like, don't you see how messed up our land is? Just let them go. And of course he doesn't. So God demonstrates his power by sending these acts of, of the plagues, but he also shows his power by showing exactly where and when they happen. Like, imagine Tippecanoe County covered in flies, except for West Lafayette, there's not a single fly, right? Or imagine the entire county of Tippecanoe, Tippecanoe County, decimated by hail, but on Purdue University, there is not a single cloud, all right? And furthermore, God says, tomorrow this will be gone. Tomorrow this is going to happen. God is constantly saying, this is exactly when I'm going to send this plague. So what does this have to do with us? Well, notice in all of the plagues, Moses has to go to Pharaoh and announce what God is going to do. So even though God is the one bringing all of the plagues and really doing all of the work— there is still something Moses is called to do that is challenging, which is to go before the most powerful man in Egypt and announce God's judgment on the most powerful man in Egypt. Right? And I like to imagine as time goes on, this timid guy who's afraid he can't speak well gets more and more confident as he sees the power of the God that he has been called to serve. So finally, I want to look at how our God is faithful to what he promised the Israelites. In Exodus 12, 31 through 36, it says, He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you ask and leave, and also bless me. Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, We are all going to die. 
So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on their shoulders. The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. In this way, they plundered the Egyptians. So God delivered his people from the land of Egypt just as he said he would. In fact, earlier he even promised that the Israelites would plunder the Egyptians, and they did. Like, God called his shots, all right, and he came through. And furthermore, when he liberated his people, he didn't just free his people from slavery with nothing. Like, they, they didn't leave Egypt as a people who used to be slaves. They leave Egypt as a people who have conquered and been victorious. Like, they come out of Egypt with basically all of Egypt's gold and silver and valuable things. So it's not God just liberates an enslaved people. He sends them away as a victorious, conquering people out of one of the most powerful nations of the time. And Naomi and I, I love to read books together. Naomi's my daughter. All right, she's two. And we have a book on Noah's Ark. And I know I didn't forget, like, what I'm preaching, right? I know we're in Moses. But at the end of this book, there's a sentence that summarizes, like, the whole story of Scripture. And it gives me goosebumps every time I read it. It says, remember, God always, always, always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. God kept his promises then, and he keeps his promises now. He was faithful to those promises then, and he is going to be faithful to those promises now. And when you read the words of the Bible and you read promises of God, those are not just words on the page. Those are promises to you that God promises to fulfill in your life. Now, keep in mind that, like I said, sometimes following those promises comes with challenges, so I don't want you to think it's all sunshine and daisies, but God is faithful to fulfill his promises. So I want to jump back to the tenth plague here for a second, which is the plague of the firstborn, which is that every firstborn male and every firstborn of the livestock will die. But God provides a way to protect his people. They have to kill a Passover lamb. This lamb has to be without blemish, right? No funky spots or broken legs, right? It can't have any of its bones broken for that matter. And they have to put the blood on their doorpost. And when, the, and when that blood on the doorpost is seen, the plague of the firstborn passes over their house and doesn't affect them. And they eat a meal commemorating that event, the Passover meal. And after Passover is when they triumphantly depart the land free of slavery as a newly freed people. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that Jesus is our Passover lamb. All the promises of the Old Testament come to fulfillment in Jesus. And Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus was without blemish. Jesus was without sin. He was perfect. He was whole. When he died on the cross, his bones were not broken, just like a Passover's lamb should not have their bones broken. And usually when you died on a cross, your bones were broken. On account of the blood of Jesus, the punishment for sin death has passed over us. We celebrate communion like we did last week to commemorate the sacrifice of Jesus, our Passover lamb. And when we follow Jesus, we depart the slavery of sin to finding our freedom in Christ. So what is Christ calling you to do today? 
Like, the, first of all, the sacrifice of Jesus has been made. The Passover lamb of Jesus has been sacrificed, securing people's freedom for all of time. Your freedom has already been bought, but you have to accept it. A gift is just a gift on a table unless you do something with it, if, unless you accept it. We also have to remember God calls us out of slavery, but he also calls us to a life following him. God does demand things of us. We don't do anything to earn our salvation, but when we decide to follow Jesus, he does command us to do things. He calls us to live in a way that brings glory to him, to tell others about Jesus, to love our neighbors, to serve our neighbors, to be light in community, a community that points people to Jesus. And the reason we remain faithful to that call, despite challenges we may face, is because our confidence is in the one who called us, the one who died for us. When we remember we have a merciful, powerful, faithful God behind us, we can press forward boldly, knowing that this God is for us, is working through us, and is faithful to us. So that takes me to our daily training, which is take a bold step of faith. And you may notice whenever I do daily trainings, they're super vague. But the reason for that is because I don't know what God's calling you to do. So I'm going to let you take that, right, and figure out what God is calling you to do, right? So maybe that bold step of faith is just like having a conversation with a coworker, like, or a fellow student or a friend saying, hey, how can I pray for you? And then when they tell you, don't just be like, cool. Like taking a moment and actually praying for them right there. Or maybe you've already done that, and your bold step of faith is to have a more intentional spiritual conversation with that person. Or maybe you've been feeling for a little while like God's been calling you to serve somewhere, and you are like, that is totally out of my comfort zone. Like, no way. But maybe you need to be faithful to answer that way that God is calling you to serve. So whatever it is this week, answer God's call and be faithful to God's call because ultimately we have a powerful, merciful, faithful God behind us that is sufficient for us and enables us to do all that he calls us to do. So let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are powerful, that you are merciful, and God, that you are faithful to us. I thank you for your, the Passover lamb of Jesus, that we have freedom through him, and I pray that you would remind us of that freedom as we go this week, that we would serve our neighbor, love our neighbor, and point our neighbor to you. God, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.